McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Here, voices whisper ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Pilots fly into the Bermuda Triangle and live to tell about it. Dreams and visions of future events come true. Mind-to-mind communication is the norm. Here, we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And this is episode three. And in this episode, we're going to talk to Kathy Herman who is a psychometrist in the little town of Casadega in north of Orlando. We're also going to have a writer's corner at the end that's going to be pretty interesting. It's going to be related to science fiction and precognition, stories that writers uh, have written that... uh, Presage the future, basically. Um, So we welcome you, and let's get going. Okay, today we're hosting our first guest at the Mystico Underground. Her name is Kathy Herman. She has an unusual profession, and she lives in an unusual place. Kathy is a psychometrist, someone with an ability to gain information about the past, present, and future through objects associated with the person she is reading. We'll get more into that in our interview, but first, uh, we want to talk a bit about where Kathy does her work. It's a very small town in central Florida. It's about a half an hour or so outside of Orlando, north of Orlando. It's called Casadega. Our daughter lives in Orlando, and when we visit, we're always amazed at the number of people we meet who have never heard of Casadega, which is possibly the most unusual little town in America. At the heart of Casadega is a spiritualist community. That's what makes it really unusual. It's known officially as the Southern Casadega Spiritualist Camp Meeting Association. Mouthful there. It dates back to the late 19th century when a 27-year-old medium by the name of George Colby was directed by the spirit world to journey to central Florida to establish a spiritualist community. And just to be clear, spiritualists are people who communicate with the dead. Right, yeah. So the year was 1875, and George was participating in a seance somewhere in Iowa delivering messages he was receiving to people in attendance around the table. Suddenly, as the story goes, an Indian spirit guide named Seneca came through and directed Colby to go to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where he was to hook up with T.D. Giddings, another spiritualist. Once there, he would receive further directions. So Colby was a product of the time when the spiritualist movement was sweeping the country, and so the next morning he packed up and left for Wisconsin. He found Giddings, and again Seneca came through in a seance, and the two spiritualists were given instructions to leave Wisconsin and head for Florida. Back then, trains and steamboats were the most advanced methods of transportation, so they took a train to all the way to Jacksonville, Florida, Then from there, a steamboat along the St. John's River to a place called Blue Springs that was the closest possible 
desti- to they could get to their destination. So, but the only thing that lay beyond Blue Springs was a dense subtrop- subtropical forest. But uh, Seneca made contact again and told the men to travel inland and look for a place with hills and a chain of lakes. It was easy for him. He was dead. <laughs> <laughs> they made their way through the dense underground, uh, the dense undergrowth, and after several miles, arrived at a spot that looked like what Seneca had described, the lakes and the hills. And Florida, by the way, doesn't have many hills, so it's a, a geographic uh, uh, anomaly. <laughs> yeah, right. So... Colby built a house on the shore of a lake, and Giddings uh, and his family built a home nearby. How they did this is beyond me, but they must have <laughs> figured it out. Colby eventually obtained a government deed for 74 acres, but another 18 years would pass before the spiritualist community would be established. So in October 1894, two mediums signed the charter for the spiritualist camp on 35 acres of Colby's property. According to the charter, the association was a nonprofit organization that would promote the spiritualist beliefs in the soul's immortality, the nearness of the spirit world, the guardianship of spirit friends, and the possibility of communicating with them. So all that said, I wanted to say that our guest, Kathy Herman, is not a member of this uh, spiritualist association, but one of a number of psychics and mediums who live just outside of the camp. And there's been a long time tension, I guess you would, would be the right word, between uh, those in the camp, <laughs> yeah, those in the camp, and those on the outside. Uh, but Kathy, I should say, is in good company because even George Colby, who established the site for the camp, became an outsider and was never part of the association. So I'm sure Kathy can tell us more about all of that. So we welcome Kathy to the show. Hi, Kathy. Yay! We're glad you're here. Hey, Kathy. <laughs> Um, Hi, glad to be here. (laughs) Thank you for hanging on here. Um, All right. What I'd like to know is what's it it like working in Casadega? Well, I grew up. I grew up in an Eastern European family. My mother was Hungarian. My father was Hungarian, but we're also Catholic. But in Europe, things are a little different Um, there. Carrot card reading, crystal ball reading, tea leaves is very, very common. It's like a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was kind of raised around it my entire life. So I've been around Casadega uh, most of my life also. I grew up near there, but my family owned the house there that we have now. And uh-huh. I was always around readings as a, as a kid growing up. So I saw it my whole life. In so your mother, your mother was a reader? My mother, my mother actually, my mother actually was a Catholic nun in in Hungary, and then the wow. communist. But she did readings though, also because you you know that's how they do things there. But what happened wow. is, is the communist revolution came in, and because she was a nun, either she was going to Siberia or the Red Cross told her that they would bring her to the United States. Jeez. Everybody that was in that convent. So she came to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And met your dad there? And yeah, she went to work the very next day she got here. She worked as a hosp- in a hospital in the kitchen. And there were some other Hungarian people there also. 
And then she met my dad through some other people. She got married and then learned English. And then, but she always, my mother, I always grew up, her friends did um, tarot card readings. Mm-hmm. Some did tea leaf readings. So it was, you know, it was something that I, I grew up with. Well, now, how did you start the psychometry? Well, that- I actually did tarot cards in the in the beginning when I was in my teenage years. I could mm-hmm. do tarot cards. But then what happened is, is my father passed away um, right in my early teenage years of cancer at the time. And I remember I had to go to the funeral home to take shoes there. My, they asked for shoes or something, so I had to drive shoes there. And I remember driving back from there. My father was sitting in the back seat. I saw him in the rearview mirror. Oh, wow. So was it his shoes? A younger, it was, it, it, he was a younger version. He had, like, the hat on that he always wore, uh-huh. and his he always wore a white, like, long sleeve shirt. So I I saw him and he actually, he was like riding all the way home with me. And then I told my mother and then she's like, yes, she goes, that was your father. He came to make, you know, tell you he's okay and that he's all right. Mm. So how did the, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. So then after that, I did the, I did the tarot card readings, but then as I was getting more messages, they would just come quicker. And it's like the tarot card readings kind of slowed me down. It slowed the flow down. So then I went towards like an object because people would want to give me an object to hold hmm. on to it. So I just naturally went more into the psychometry. Well, explain for people who don't know what psychometry is, explain how it works. Um, somebody gives um, you an uh, object. Yes, all readings, all readings, no matter where anybody should go, the readings should cover past, present, and future. Now, there's different ways of going about it. Like I said, you can do tarot cards, you can do tea leaves, some people do runes, the stones. Um, I do psychometry from like a personal object, and it usually should be a metal object because you want to pull the energy out of it. But with that, I pick up, it's like a piece of a puzzle of somebody's life. And then you're picking up the pieces and then you're relaying it to the person because sometimes it's the past, sometimes it's the present, sometimes it's the future. Hmm. Now, Kathy, the people across the street in the association, the spiritualist community, they don't go for the uh, the cards <laughs> and the runes and all of that. Isn't that, isn't, is that still the case? I know that was the tr- what they had said uh, a long time ago. We were going there. Well, I, I believe now they have some readers there that do do the tarot cards. Mm -hmm. A a lot of, a lot of what they do on Sundays though, is like the message service. That's what they like to do is the message service. And that's what they prefer to do on Sundays. But I know that they have a couple of people there now that now practice the tarot cards. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to those services. I went with my daughter, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and it's pretty wild. I mean, there, uh, it's kind of starts out a bit like a, uh, like maybe a Baptist uh, revival, <laughs> revival or something, where yeah, they're yeah, they're, re- yeah. they're reading and singing from uh, hymn books, and then uh, then somebody came up and uh, gave like a meditation, a visualization that was kind of interesting for about uh, fifteen minutes or so, and then somebody came up and they just started giving spot readings to people around the room. And then they had uh, healers, too. Uh, people ran to these uh, seats at the back, and uh, if you got in a the seat, then the healers would come around and stand behind you and do a healing. So 
now, now the people at the camp, most of the people there, they're they're actually you're you're supposed to be a spiritualist. Whereas in the rest of Casadega, the rest of us, I mean, you have Baptists, you have Catholics. Not everybody is a spiritualist. Right. Some people mm-hmm. are Buddhist, you know. But it, the people in the camp, they want you to be a spiritualist. Right. So is that mandatory for living in one of the houses? Um. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, okay, so I know the first time our daughter got a reading with you, she handed you her cell phone. <laughs> so when you are given an object, what what happens? I mean, do you get impressions? Do you get feelings? Do you have visions? How, how does it work? Well, before before cell phones, I would use like either a ring or a personal piece of jewelry or car keys because car keys mm-hmm. are very personal to someone. And then the cell phones came and now everybody's life is kind of like in a cell phone, <laughs> yeah. their energy, their life, you know, what's going on. So now I, I do a lot with cell phones, but sometimes I can pick up like numbers or I'll pick up a name or sometimes I'll see a place like with mountains or mm. I'll see like a map in the direction going towards the northwest part. Mm. Or you can see somebody like you can see somebody sometimes on spirit mm. side. You mm. can kind of see the image of someone that you relate to the person that you're reading to. Or mm. else you'll just pick up like a you'll pick up like a feeling. And then you just after time, you you just kind of like know what that is that it's relating to the person's significant other or it's relating to a child. You just kind of with, yeah, you just kind of, you get familiar with what it is. Well, okay. Here's a question. When you're out grocery shopping or, you know, running errands, how do you shut that off? I mean, do you pick up impressions from pieces of fruit, you know, (laughs) that you might pick up out of a bin or how's that work? Sometimes, a lot of times, like I can pick up on people that are like in the line or whatever, if Mm -hmm. someone's sick or, or if something, you know, they're going to, something that they're doing, maybe sometimes I can pick up if they're doing something financially, or if someone is, would like to have a child, you can pick that Mm -hmm. up. Now, I also worked in the medical field for 25 years, emergency medicine, which was my real daytime job. And there you just, you had to learn to cut it off because it would just be too draining because you're working, you're working with very sick people. You're working with people that are dying. And so you would just have to learn to cut it off unless you're working. I work many, many cardiac arrests, which we call a code blue. And then there you kind of know, or you kind of pick up when it's time to let go that the person wants to go to the other side or they're going to go to the other side. Wow. Yeah. Now, in any of those patients, have you ever seen the spirit leave? Yes, yes. There was a couple times when we were in the emergency room working like a like a code blue or whatever, and we had been working like, you know, you'd work it for 10 minutes or something. There was, there was quite a few times where you could just feel like a gush of wind come in, mm-hmm. like a mm. gush of wind. And everybody else, they would think, oh, well, that's the air conditioning backfiring or something. But it wasn't. It was a spirit moving on and the wow. other spirits coming to take them. Yes. Hmm. Kathy, uh, I know so- that some psychometrists uh, have worked with uh, archaeologists on uh, at sites, uh, ancient sites and ruins. Have you ever done anything like that with uh, ancient, uh, picking up on the ancient world? 
I've had people bring me things from like a lady brought me something from Egypt. One she wanted me to pick up on a couple other people have brought me some things from, from Africa, like a mask. And then Hmm. they brought me some clothing and then jewelry that they wanted me to pick up on. Hmm. But yes, and I've even, I've had the police, We've had the police, because my brother does readings too, we've had the police come there a couple times and work on a couple cold cases. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. Your husband is also a police officer, isn't he? Yes, he's retired now, but he was a police officer for 30 years. Oh, did you ever work with him on any cases? Um, He would ask me once in a while something because they would be like looking for somebody. And then he would say, well, where do you think you think you can pick up like where you think the person would have went or, Mm -hmm. you know, what direction somebody who's absconded or whatever. And they needed to find where the person was. That's pretty. That's like my novels. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you've been. How many years in Casadega? Probably going on 42 years now. Mm. Wow. So has the community changed much over the years? Yeah, it, the buildings, the buildings and the streets and everything has, has kind of stayed the same. Now the hotel across the street from us has changed hands a couple times. Right. It originally it was once a nursing home, then it was a it was a big band era place where people would come on Saturday nights and there was like a lot of dancing and stuff going on on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Then then they went back and they did it in back where it was for readings. So and then since then, probably the last maybe fifteen, eighteen years, they've they've converted it back where all the readers are there and the restaurant is there. Now the camp also the camp they used to tell people like the only real readers are right. there in their part and don't uh-huh. go across the street, don't go here because everybody across the street is faking everything. And, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, heard, we that, have, heard that years ago. Yeah, when we yes, yes, them. but. But then you know what happened? A piece of property came up for sale across the street, and guess who bought it? The camp. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now they've kind of um, set up shop there. They've expanded there too. So, right. but a lot of a lot of the people that um that are still the owners have been there for probably the last thirty years. They're the same people. Now, mm-hmm. now there's a lot of different readers that come and go before you had the same readers that were there for 20 years, 25 right. years, but some of them have passed on. So now we have in the other places, there's kind of like a bigger influx of readers that kind of come and go. Are you talking about in the hotel or in the association? In the, camp? In the camp, in the ho- in the hotel, some of them in the camp around the corner at the purple rose as uh-huh. well. Some people, because some of the readers, too, go up to, like, Lilydale and other places, Sedona. Uh, so they kind of come and go. They're a little bit more mobile than what they have been. Okay, mm. so, so the readers that are in the hotel are in, uh, as, as part of it, are they, like, a spiritualist then in the camp? Or are they the, from the No, hotel? that's, that's, they're separate. Yeah, that's they're what I thought. Separate. Because the, the hotel yeah. isn't owned by the uh, the camp, right? It's, it's a no, private. No, it's owned by an. Yes, by an individual, by a private right. individual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've seen some changes over the years there, too. I mean, we had one experience there where we went on Bike Week when 
There was no, uh, in uh, it was about this time of year, uh, February or March, and we went there, and it was really cold, and there was nobody in the hotel. Uh, Megan was just a baby. Yeah, Megan was a baby. We went in, and we got a room on the second floor. We got a suite, actually, and uh, we went to bed, I don't know, around uh, 12. We were reading for a while, and it was around 12.30 or so, and uh, we were just about ready to go to bed when we heard this sound coming down the hall, this clomping sound, heavy, like heavy, heavy heavy boots. boots just coming down that hall coming towards us uh, and we're, we're at the end of the hall and we went over to the door and I put my hand in the door but I just but had first to... we moved the dresser in front yeah. of the door well yeah and what happened is we were really freaked out by this I mean uh, we're, <laughs> we're normally not that frightened by you know the spirit contact but this was terrifying yeah. it, it affected both of us and we actually, like Trish said, pushed the dresser in front of the door. Whatever it came right to our door and stopped right in front of the door. But there was and no, rattled yeah, the, it, handle. The, the handle rattled, and uh, there was no way I was going to open that door. And then it it just it just slumped on down the hall. Yeah, and disappeared. Uh, you know, it was, and then left. And left. Yeah. yeah. But Kathy, the next day, I asked whoever was at the desk. I said, "Hey." Uh, your hotel is haunted. He goes, oh, yeah, we only have friendly spirits. But this was not friendly. <laughs> what we experienced was not a, a friendly uh, entity, it seemed. I mean, it's just uh, really startled us. And that's right across the street from you. Yeah. <laughs> right across. Well, we've we've had experiences where, like, at our door, too, like at our at our porch door, you could hear it rattling and the wind's not blowing. Nobody's there. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> and that's so, during the day. He, that's during the day and uh-huh. during the evening as well. Yeah, uh, that's freaky. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a question. But, and at at night, also, if you're there at night, you could see a lot of spirit orbs there as well. Casadega is a place of high energy, so it attracts a lot from spirit land as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're ever there, I'm sure you're there a lot in the evenings. Yeah. You can see with a camera, or whatever, you can pick up a lot of orbs there. Yeah, we went down uh, one evening by the uh, temple, uh, Kobe Temple, I think it's called, where they do the uh, services, and they have a little park next to it, and we're sitting yeah. there. And that's when, remember, you saw that white wolf? Yeah, I remember that. It was she a saw white wolf. A white wolf streaked by. That uh, really freaked me out. I thought, oh, my God, we're going to die. <laughs> well, you know, animals also go to the other side. Pets go right. to the other side. It, it wouldn't be heaven without them. So animals, they all go also when they pass to the other side. But have there ever been wolves? In Casa Dega. That's what really baffled me. No, what we did have in the 1980s, the place had a lot, a lot of peacocks. They were all over the place. You would yeah, wake I up remember. in the morning right. and they'd be sitting on your rooftops. They'd be all over the place. And that, that eerie sound they make, it just, uh, it's spooky. That, 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 uh, that almost yes, like a and, howl. And, mm-hmm. And and nobody could understand why they were drawn there, but 
They were there for quite a while, and all of a sudden they disappeared. Now, if you look around, is have you seen all the black cats? There's black yes. cats everywhere, hmm. yeah. and they're they're feral cats. And you know, when you have feral cats, you have gray ones, white ones, tiger stripe ones. But these, all of ours, there are all solid black. Hmm. The minute you said that, yeah, our um, black and white cat is meowing at the door. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get him, Trish? Uh, so, Kathy, um, you have strangers coming to your door every day for readings. Have you ever encountered somebody who you just could not read that just put up a wall or it was just very difficult to read? Well, we we tell people because that's we do. We have a lot of people come to the door every single day, especially on the weekends. And like a lot of times, you sometimes you'll get like a group of people and then somebody's telling somebody, get a reading, get a reading. <laughs> and I tell the people, you know, you have to want to get a reading because you have to be open to it for you to right. get a good reading. But if you're going to come there and, you know, with a with a negative, a negative mindset to begin with, you're not going to get a, a good reading because you're not open to listening to what the person's telling you. So, right. yes, I've had a couple of people that in my yeah. in my time there that I could not read. But then the person would tell me, I didn't want a reading to begin with. You know, the person just volunteered me here or whatever. And yeah. I told them, uh, you know, like you're wasting your time then. Yeah, we know somebody who uh, lives in St. Augustine who is uh, quite psychic and was involved with a lot of police work for a number of years. And we known her through the internet for years and uh we told her about you and she it's like she uh i don't know if she was jealous or what but she said but she she went and had a reading with you and she just wanted to prove that you're no good so <laughs> she cro i think she crossed her arms and you know just uh, put up a shield and she said i didn't get anything <laughs> uh, and i think that was like like what you're saying if they don't want to uh, they're not open to it. They're not open to it. They're not. If you're not open to it, you know it's an experience, and if you're not going to be open to it, you sh you shouldn't do it. You know, yeah. a reading's not for everybody, but if you are open to it, sometimes you can get. I mean, something that you've been looking for, you'll get a message, mm -hmm. or you'll get you'll get direction that you need from it. Right. Yeah. Um. Have you seen any ETs? In Casadega. <laughs> I've actually seen a couple um, extraterrestrial ships there before mm. out in the sky. And there's no way it could have been a helicopter or anything else. And it came too low to the ground and then it disappeared. Hmm. When was this? I saw that probably in the 1990s. My brother uh. saw it as well. Yeah. Was it at night? It must have been. It was at night, yes. Hmm. Who was that reader we went to the first time we went up there? He lived up on the Don. You know, Don. Yeah, there's a man named Don Fleck who used I think to he live died. there. Yeah, and uh, he said he would uh, he, he would have uh, conversations or communication with uh, beings in uh, ships overhead. Uh, that something he he would pick up on sometimes. Yes, because, you know, we're not the only, in this big, wide-open universe, we're not the only ones here. It, that's just impossible. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, have to, you have to believe that there's, you know, that there's somebody else out there as well, another being. Yeah. Right. Well, I would think, too, that with the 
energy of Casadega that it would attract ships. <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe. Um, when you were working as a nurse, did your colleagues know about your abilities? Well, actually, there was another girl that I worked with at one time. She was also a reader. So she knew of me. And then there was another lady, another nurse. She was much older, but she was another nurse. And she actually come to I found out after about two years of her working there that she lived in the camp, but she would never acknowledge it. Wow. Yeah, she would never acknowledge it or she wouldn't she wouldn't say one word about it. And if huh. I brought it up, she would avoid me like the plague. <laughs> Interesting. So you didn't know her? I mean through Casa No, Dega. I didn't no, no. I knew from there and then I I saw her in Casadega at the post office actually, and then I figured out where she lived and she was a reader at in the camp. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Very secretive about it. When you need a reading, where do you go? (laughs) Um, Sometimes I've had some friends um, pick up things on me and tell me, Uh but, or sometimes I, my brother would pick up on me. He would throw out some cards for me. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, it just all depends. Yeah. That's interesting. I've always wondered where psychics get readings. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to read for yourself because you don't want to be, you know, unbiased about it. You want right. it to go in one way or another. Well, that's why the same thing is true in astrology. I mean, I could sit and look at my own chart for days and not figure out anything. <laughs> no, it's... Because you want it, you want it to say something for you. You know, right. you want it to go in your direction. Yeah. So, uh, because you're pretty well known uh, out on the outskirts of Casadega, as a, one of the outside <laughs> readers. And your house is very prominent. I mean, if you're standing in front of the there Casa Dega Hotel, there it is, right there. It is, uh, it is the hotel. Uh, it is the house, and with the signs and everything, I think you probably would attract people who don't know that you're not part of the community. And uh, as a result of that, do you feel hostility from the, some of these people? Do they know who you are? And is there anything? You like, mean in the camp? Yeah, mm-hmm. from the camp. Well, some, I mean, sometimes I've heard this from people that have come looking for me yeah. and they've never been there before. And they, you know, the campus has information. They go there and they ask for Kathy and they say oh. the camp will tell them they don't know who I am or where oh. I am. And they, <laughs> yeah. they oh, know where I am. So yeah, right. Okay. You know, and then, the, yeah. And then the people would tell me, well, you know, they told me they didn't know who you are or where you <laughs> are. And it's like you're right across the street. Right. Yeah. So, I mean. Some of that is very foolish, you know, because if people ask us for something, we tell them, go to the camp right. or walk around and get your vibe. You want to get your vibe where you feel comfortable, right. where you feel the mojo is the best for you. Mm-hmm. Go get your reading there. You don't have to do it with us. You know, you want to get the best reading possible. So walk around, ask questions, feel the energy and go where you're drawn. Because ultimately, everybody that comes there, you want to get the best reading possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Okay, today in the Writer's Corner, we'd like to talk about a type of phenomena that involves science fiction writers. They have a long tradition of envisioning the future 
and its technology that later becomes scientific fact. In fact, through their creativity, they seem to tune in on the future. It's a type of precognition, I think. I mean, take Jules Verne. Okay, how many of us have read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? He wrote that one in 1870. And in it, he imagined an underwater ship powered by electricity. American inventor Simon Lake was inspired by the novel and invented his own submarine, the Argonaut, in 1888. Then there was Verne's novel, From the Earth to the Moon, published in 1865. And this one was really startling. It described the details of a space capsule that in 1969 sent astronauts to the moon, the Apollo 11. He stipulated in the novel how long the flight would take, that it would be launched from Florida, and he described its splashdown in the ocean. He also described light-propelled spacecraft, now known as solar sails. And keep in mind that Verne was living in the time of the Civil War. So a whole lot of stuff was going on in this guy's head. Now, I don't think he, he wasn't really unique because other writers have done this, but I think that Verne, as a science fiction writer who, who really tuned in on the future, may hold the top prize for this stuff. Okay, then there was, I'd never heard of this man, Edward Bellamy. Uh, in 1888, he wrote a book called Looking Backward. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Uh, it was a utopian novel set in Boston in 2000. In the story, the U.S. is a country that exists in a spirit of cooperation and brotherhood. Hmm, not exactly like what life is like in the 21st century. However, the people in this uh, utopia carry cards that allow them to make purchases without cash. Sounds a lot like a debit card. Then we have... Heinlein's most famous novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. But like many writers, he started out writing short stories. And this, this particular thing comes from a short story he wrote in 1941. It was called Solution Unsatisfactory, and it was published in Astounding Science Fiction. Now, this was about a future where the U.S. develops an atomic weapon that ends World War II. The event launches an ar a nuclear arms raid race. The story was written in uh, before the United States entered World War II and five years before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Then we have Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's 1953 book. He, in, in that book, he describes little, little seashells, thimble radios, he calls them. They're like portable headphones. Uh, now, portable headphones already existed in 1953, but they were massive and heavy. So Bradbury's thimble radio describes earbuds, which didn't come into wide use until around 2000. Uh, with the popularity of wireless earbuds, these little seashells, that he, as he called them, became an even more apt metaphor. Then, then there's William Gibson. In 1984, his novel, uh, Neuromancer, predicted the World Wide Web, virtual reality, cyberspace, and hacking a decade before the internet existed as it does today. Now, even Stephen King has proven to be pretty precognitive, uh, which isn't surprising. <laughs> in May 1982, King published The Running Man, and that came out under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. The story is set in the U.S. in 2025, where life is a dystopian nightmare. The economy is in ruins, and Bim Richards, the protagonist, is desperate. He's unemployed. His daughter is really sick. And his wife is now prostituting to help pay the bills. He undergoes really rigorous training, so he'll be chosen to participate in The Running Man, which is the most lucrative game show or the most lucrative show of Games Network 
He'll be hunted by the network's elite killing team, and if he manages to survive for 30 days, he'll win one billion. Okay, in 1987, that novel became a movie star- starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. In September 1989, a TV reality show, American Gladiators, premiered, and it had many un- un- really uncanny parallels to The Running Man, minus the death threat. So that's just a small section of, of science fiction novels that presage the future. Now, what happens if you get a group of writers together and they dive into this, you know, archetypal well where time doesn't exist? Take Star Trek. <laughs> One of the most famous Star Trek gadgets was the communicator, which looks similar to cell phones of today. Martin Cooper, who oversaw the invention of the first mobile phone in the 1970s, directly credited Star Trek for inspiring his vision. Then there's the PAD, P-A-D-D, a device first seen in Star Trek The Next Generation in the late 80s. The PAD, or personal access display device, bore a really strong resemblance to today's Android and Apple tablets and had a similar smooth, flat, touchscreen interface. Now, Philip K. Dick really wasn't that well known in his time, but ever since his death, his, his, he's just exploded. Uh, the film Minority Report was based on a short story by him, and it was the most accurate in predicting how universal touch technology be- would become. In uh, 2013, researchers at the University of Bristol announced ultra-haptic technology, which allows for touchscreen technology without the touching, just like in the movie. Then you have Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, a 2004 movie. that It imagined a procedure where memories can be erased. In 2013, scientists were testing a drug that blocks certain types of memories in animals with just a single dose. Three-month-old uh, three memories of lab rat, rats were erased, and weeks later there was no sign of the memory returning. Poor rats. <laughs> Then we have the 1990 film Total Recall. In this movie, uh, they had high-speed full-body security scanners. In 2016, Boston-based Evolve Technology announced plans for the first public trials of AI-powered high-speed body scanners. So these are examples of precognition through creativity in science fiction novels. But one of the ones that, in my mind, that really holds the prize, in 1972, Regency Press published a novel called Black Abductor by Harrison James, which was a pseudonym for James Rusk Jr. It's about a terrorist group led by a black man who kidnapped his college student, Patricia. Her wealthy father was well-known and had right-wing sympathies. In the novel, Patricia was kidnapped near campus while she was with her boyfriend and was badly beaten by the abductors. For a while in the novel, the boyfriend was a suspect in the case. The fictional Patricia initially resisted her captors, but eventually subscribed to their ideology and became a champion of their cause. The, ter- the terrorists sent Polaroid photos to her father and described the abduction as America's first political kidnapping. And they predicted they eventually would be surrounded by police, tear-gassed, and wiped out. All right, here's the weird part. Two years after the book was published in 1974, Patricia Hearst daughter of newspaper baron Randolph Hearst, and then a college student, was abducted from her apartment or campus. The kidnappers were members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, a terrorist group led by a black man. Her boyfriend, Stephen Weed, was with her at the time, 
was badly beaten and became a suspect in the case. Patricia Hearst, like the fictional Patricia, became a sympathizer of her abductor's cause. She ended up robbing a bank with her kidnappers and was photographed carrying an MI carbine. Now, either the, the FBI was either familiar with the novel or had read it, and the author became a suspect in the case. The real-life abductors were eventually surrounded by the police, tear-gassed, and killed, just as the fictional kidnappers predicted they, they would be. So, had the terrorists read the novel? Or was this an instance where a creative edge enabled an author to sense the future so deeply that he uncovered really stunning details identical to those that came about two years later? And this whole topic interested me when I had a similar experience with a novel I'd written called Storm Surge. In 1992, before I even knew about any of these precognitive movies and books, uh, in August 14, 1992, actually, I mailed off a novel, Storm Surge, to my new editor at Hyperion. It was the seventh in a, fe- in a series that featured a husband and wife detective team. And the story revolved around a Category 5 hurricane named Alfonso that slams into South Florida and flattens entire neighborhoods. So on the same day that I mailed it off to her, this is in the days before email, um, a tropical wave moved off the coast of Africa. And it's one of many that rolled away from that continent during hurricane season. And it had completely escaped my notice. But 10 days later, that wave had grown into one of the most powerful hurricanes on record. At one point, its winds were estimated to be in excess of 200 miles an hour. Hurricane Andrew walloped Homestead, Florida, basically wiped it off the map and obliterated entire neighborhoods. Now, for me, the synchronicity was striking in several ways. In fiction and in real life, both hurricanes were, were first named storms of the season and began with an A. They were Category 5s. Both were tightly compacted storms that targeted only a small area. In the book, it was Miami Beach and South Beach that took the hit. In real life, it was Homestead, about 40 miles south of Miami Beach. So after that happened, I, I promised myself I would never write again about hurricanes. I broke that promise in 2005, but that's another story. So hope you enjoyed the precognition and novels. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow the podcast on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog.synchrosecrets.com. Visit the book site, phenomenon111.com. Until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. The thing about the, uh, you know, smartphones uh, being a product of Star Trek, uh, that that that's uh, that's one. Uh, I think it's I think it's CNET. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if the podcast still exists, but I think it was CNET that used to have a podcast on uh, uh, an Apple podcast, and the name of it was "We Have Communicators." <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) That is cool.